Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Women are not the only people who can become pregnant, but reflecting that reality by using terms like pregnant people has sparked pushback in the wake of Roe v. Wade's demise. And from some surprising corners, some feminists have been frustrated with gender-neutral language, saying women feel pushed aside, even erased. So this hour, we explore why, with feminist writers and thinkers Judith Butler and Roxane Gay. They join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Forum senior producer Susan Davis told a story the other day that got us thinking about some of the pushback against gender-neutral language and terms like pregnant people or birthing person in the wake of Rose reversal. The terms meant to reflect the universe of people who can become pregnant, including non-binary people and trans men and others, have sparked articles and frustrated tweets from some longtime feminists, famous women and others, worried that the abortion rights movement is erasing the word women at a time when women's rights are being rolled back. So I asked Susan if she could come on and tell that story she'd shared with us. Hi, Susan. Hi, Mina. So what happened at a recent family dinner with your mom and son? Um, So my mom is 85 years old, and my son is 18, and he was, we were at dinner together, he was telling a long, complicated story about his friends and an adventure they had, and several of his friends use um, the pronoun they, them, the pronouns they, them, and my mother was struggling to keep up, and she was struggling to keep up with the pronouns, not the story, and she was either interrupting him to ask or um, seeming confused. Um, To me, she seemed confused. My son got very frustrated with her and a little angry. And she got very quiet. And then she said to him, I need you to understand that I have spent my life working for women, for women to be able to seek justice, for women to be able to be in spaces without men, for women to be paid the same as men for the same work, and that it's it's going to take me a minute. You need to give me a minute to catch up. And it was a great moment for me because the look on his face was um, almost like he was understanding for the first time history <laughs> and, that, and that there were people uh, who had done a kind of work that was important to how he was living now. Yeah. And 
she basically said to him, uh, you got to give me a minute to evolve. You got to wait for me to catch up. And I, I was very moved, partly because I could feel my position as a bridge between them, but also because I think it was such a clear and smart articulation of kind of what's going on right now in a for me, it feels like a generational divide between young people for whom gender fluidity and a wide range of pronouns is sort of the water they've been swimming in for a long time. But for someone like my mother who wants to evolve and works hard to evolve, she might need some time. And the hostility towards the time it's taking her and her generation, I sort of took that personally from my kid. And it's nice that uh, conversation brought so much up for me and for each of them. And at the end, it was a moment where I was like, okay, this kind of needs to happen on a small scale everywhere all the time, <laughs> where young people are waiting for the rest of us, waiting respectfully um, for us to catch up. Your mother, Edwina Davis, as you say, is a longtime feminist activist who supports LGBTQ rights. Do you still sense hesitation from her about gender-neutral language? Um, I th- Not gender-neutral language. Absolutely gender fluidity, gender a, a gender-neutral life, a non-binary life. I think it's a fact that for a lot of people in that generation, even as they work hard to understand, they're not really going to understand. It's so outside, not just their realm of experience, but also, frankly, theoretical frameworks they've been living in, consciously or not. Um, so I think what she is, is eighty-five is an 85-year-old upper-middle-class white Jewish feminist <laughs> trying to catch up. And I, you know, that's all she can be right now. So I really admire and respect that. I really wanted my son to admire and respect that, too. I don't know if he's at the admiration, but he's getting to respect. Yeah, where do you think it left your son and what you'd like to see with regard to both your mom and your son giving each other space to grow? (laughs) I would really like my son, um, who identifies as a cisgender male, to spend the rest of his life uh, knowing women, appreciating women, um, and loving women and respecting them, including the ones like my mom for whom... Women are women and men are men, even as she recognizes there's a lot of people who live differently and identify differently. And I I, I mostly wanted my son to be able to turn around and look behind him and not be frightened or stupid about it. And is there something you wanted from your mom? Um, I probably um, only to keep evolving openly. I think it's really um, hard for feminists of that generation who see a lot of their work undone uh, by the Supreme Court and other institutions, it's important for them to not feel abandoned by young people. Forum Senior Producer Susan Davis, thanks for sharing your story. My pleasure. So I'm really excited to bring into the conversation now our guests for the hour, Judith Butler and Roxane Gay. Judith Butler, they're Maxine Elliott Professor in the Department of Comparative Literature at UC Berkeley. Thanks so much for being with us. It's my, my pleasure and honor. Also, Roxane Gay, best-selling author of Difficult Women, Hunger, Bad Feminist, and other books. She also edited and wrote the introduction for the anthology, The Selected Works of Audre Lorde. Roxane Gay, great to have you on with us as well. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So, Judith, let me start with you. Have 
either of you heard concern or apprehension or just pushback in feminist circles to terms like pregnant people or birthing person or more gender-inclusive terms like that? Um, I've certainly heard that pushback. And um, maybe we need to distinguish between um, women or other people who have problems with gender-inclusive language uh, because they fear um, that their hard work is being reversed. Yeah. And others who are uh, perhaps more, um, well, frankly, hateful or phobic, uh, who who are worried about trans women being women. Um, and in the UK, as you may know, there have been some rather huge debates on this. And we now have a class of feminists who are... Um, calling for the exclusion of trans women from the category of women. So that particular challenge is one that some feminists, I feel, have not lived up to well. Uh, They've responded with uh, reactionary politics, sometimes sounding very much like the papacy that tells us that there's, you know, there's God created man and woman, and this is the way it should always be. Um, And that's for me, disturbing to see that kind of alliance of a certain kind of feminism. Some people call them TERFs. Sometimes they call themselves gender critical um, with, uh, with, with right-wing views on the immutability of, of sex itself. Um, but I do agree that there are many people, people my age, younger or older, who uh, stumble and have reticence or are confused um, maybe for political reasons, but maybe also because they're used to using language a certain way. It's become settled usage, and they're disturbed by the fact that language is a living thing and that sometimes we have to accept new usages. Um, uh, so I think um, stumbling, erring, and arriving is something that many of us have had to do, um, and but taking a reactionary position, I think, is a is a separate kind of issue. I, I, I don't I don't hear that as your, uh, as your as your mother's position. But I, um, I think maybe there's a distinction there. Yeah. Well, Roxanne Gay, curious what you have been hearing or experiencing, or seeing as well with regard to pushback around language that tries to be more gender inclusive, doesn't use women or woman as often when it's trying to apply it to a broad range of different experiences? You know, I've seen much of what uh, Judith referred to. People, especially feminists, are really afraid because in the past two years, since the beginning of the pandemic, we have seen women's rights being retracted. The overturn of Roe v. Wade which is not shocking to anyone who's worked in reproductive justice, still is shocking. And it feels like women are losing all of the ground that we've gained over the past 100 years. And of course, within the category of women, the more marginalized you are, the more ground you've lost. And so I understand this resistance to change and what might seem like erasure, but I think that it reveals a profound lack of imagination to assume that to say pregnant people, for example, is an erasure instead of an inclusion, because women are indeed people, as are trans men, as are non-binary people. And so I see a lot of this pushback from feminists who seem to have forgotten how 
hard we had to fight to push our chosen pronouns and to get people to accept them and then want to do that same sort of oppression to trans people. It's um, really disappointing, especially from some pretty high-profile feminists Mm. just think as leaders of a community that they would lead by example, that they would lead through learning. And uh, there's a real reluctance, and uh, it's a shame. I'm struck, Judith, by Roxane Gay saying a lack of imagination and this sort of positioning which feels like using gender-neutral language or including trans women or trans men in the conversation related to reproductive rights almost comes at a cost to women itself, almost like rights are a zero-sum game. Um, I'm wondering if you think that part of that sense, even if it's not accurate, is operating here. Well, I think when you've been able to presume for a long time that the category of women grounds reproductive rights, and you realize that there are people who need they need health care, they need assistance, they need abortion rights, who um, are not not women who have either gone through sex reassignment or reassigned themselves in ordinary life. Um, It's just a question of adding a category. I say women and and pregnant people. But you know, um, I think uh, if you you look at the opposition to gay marriage rights, you know, people said, but marriage is heterosexual. We can't, we can't have gay marriage. Gay marriage is a violation of what marriage is. It's like, well, marriage has been a certain way for some time, but it also is an historical category, and it permits of change and adaptation. Perhaps we could use that as an analogy to think about pregnancy. Yes, women and pregnant people. It shouldn't be that hard to say. We'll talk more about the reaction that using more gender-inclusive language in the wake of Roe is getting NY with Judith Butler and Roxanne Gay after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the term pregnant people, similar gender-neutral language, its increase in use post-Roe and as as Roe was being threatened, and why it's evoking strong reactions even in feminist circles. We're joined by Judith Butler, Maxine Elliott Professor in the Department of Comparative Literature at the University of California at Berkeley, Roxane Gay, author of books including Difficult Women, Hunger, and Bad Feminist, 
She edited and wrote the introduction for the new anthology, The Selected Works of Audre Lorde. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation and have joined before the show, sharing how you feel about the term pregnant people, talking about what gender means to you and how you talk about your gender. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Leanne writes, I prefer the phrase pregnant people because when I use it, I hope I am helping others feel loved and included. Nolan writes, Not every statement needs to include the totality of human experience. If you want to be abundantly inclusive, fine to say women and others with female reproductive organs. But I think it's doing a disservice to women to be vague about who is being attacked by anti-abortion laws. Roxanne, I want to ask you about this. I wonder if there is a fear. Nolan seems to have it, especially among cis women, that if we start using pregnant people more often than we use women, that it will somehow obscure the fact that women are also the targets of these reversals or losses of abortion rights and other rights, and then by extension, obscure the pervasiveness and even what many see as the intensification of sexism and misogyny in society. I think anyone who believes that is willing to see women erased already. Um, The idea that women could be obscured from reproductive activism and from the real problems that we are facing right now when it comes to reproductive justice is simply absurd. How could we possibly be erased when it's about us? Inclusive language is simply a reminder that we are not the only people who can get pregnant. And so we cannot only talk about women. We have to talk about everyone who's affected. And I will insist upon that as loudly as I can, wherever I can, because we are not going to be obscured. And I think that fear is misplaced. There are far greater things that we need to be afraid of. Are there times when specificity of the category woman is important, um, Judith Butler, especially in the realm of reproductive justice, or not really? <laughs> no, I think I think it is, but it doesn't. I guess my answer is that it doesn't take away from women, or the it doesn't stop us from using that category to add pregnant people. It's it's an additive approach. It's not an erasure. Um, you know, it may be the case that. Uh, we have to look a little bit more broadly at the politics that's emerging in this country. The, um, the, um, what's what happened with the repeal of Roe v. Wade, and what's happening now in in many state legislatures is an attack on women, on reproductive rights, on on trans rights, their legal rights, their access to health care. Um, to sex education, where gay, lesbian sexuality is openly discussed as a human possibility, um, the, even the attack on on so-called critical race theory. I mean, there is a uh, what, what's we we might need to contextualize all this. Um, so even though we, there are times when women want to speak as women or for women, we have to remember that we it's imperative right now to make alliances mm. with a broad range of people. We should be having LGBTQIA plus and feminism and anti-racism 
um, minimally um, because we are all targets of many of the same people, uh, and we would be foolish to become bogged down in internecine fighting when alliance is is uh, urgent. Well, how would you characterize what is happening right now? We often say it's a backlash against women's rights, LGBTQIA rights, but I've heard you describe it as a restoration project. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that if you look at the speeches of Viktor Orban, who apparently is being invited to address uh, members of the Republican Party, uh, uh, it's it's about restoring a prior order where, at least for him in Hungary, where white people dominate, where interracial marriage is banned, where gender is no longer taught at the universities, um, where uh, f- feminists... Uh, uh, are accused of uh, attacking women or being bad for children. Um, I mean, the attack on reproductive rights is, at least in the Christian right, uh, which, as you know, has now informs our Supreme Court, um, uh, it, it is linked with these other issues. So we would be, I think, foolish uh, not to see those links and pursue them and, and build coalitions that are strong enough to respond. What would you say characterizes this moment for you or the moment that we're in, Roxane Gay? I think what characterizes this moment is that we are seeing a lot of retraction across the board for anyone who's marginalized. And we often like to imagine that this is the last gasp of the white heteropatriarchy, but I mean, my goodness, it's a certainly powerful last gasp. And I don't know that it's only people of a certain age, because there are a lot of young people that are harboring a lot of bigotries. And it's about control and power. And we really have to be vigilant and recognize that it's not any one marginalized group that's being affected. It's all of us. And we need to recognize that and recognize that we are not necessarily facing the same oppressions, but we are all oppressed fairly equally. And we should work in concert instead of against one another Mm -hmm. in support of our own interests. Let me go to caller Sarah in San Francisco. Hi, Sarah. Hi. I just want to say, first off, thank you so much for having Judith Butler and Roxanne Gay on. Mm-hmm. And, and I just appreciate everything that you all have have said. I think especially the thing about the, that Roxanne Gay said about the lack of imagination that, um, that happens. I'm somebody who, um, you know, I'm a 50-year-old cis white woman who, um, you know, did what was then called women's studies in college and and it was so important to me um and have tried to be active around reproductive justice and other kinds of um gender justice issues since then and so i've learned a lot um the last 10 20 years about um about transgender folks and about um, the gender binary. And I have some amazing young people who are teaching me a lot right now. But the the point I wanted to make was just the extent to which, you know, and this goes along with the comments that both of your guests have said about how we need to be together and not opposed to each other in this moment. I mean, the gender binary and the kind of sexist hierarchy that um, feminists have uh, have been fighting for many many generations are of a piece they're the same thing the gender mm. binary is sort of a tool that's been used to um divide people and oppress 
women and oppressed people who don't fit into the gender binary. And so I, I, it helped me as somebody who, you know, who has learned a lot in the last couple decades about this to to think in in those terms. And I think it's an important idea that well, these are of a piece. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thanks for bringing up the binary. We've had a few other comments that I'd like to read. Mary Susan Gast, who's actually Benicia's poet laureate, writes, as a poet, linguist, and advocate for reproductive freedom over the past 50 years plus, I've long promoted use of the terms pregnant people or people who menstruate by reasoning. My reasoning has been, as expressed in my poem, Grammar Lesson, if people get pregnant, maybe the processes of gestation and giving birth could be seen as part of the human condition. Elsie writes, the phrase pregnant people does not bother me at all. Not only is it more accurate and inclusive but it also reaffirms that pregnancy does not invalidate our personhood. Alice Hale writes, I'm fine with it. Referring to women has done little to protect our rights, and maybe if we are thought of as people, then we will be seen as deserving of bodily autonomy. I I think it's interesting, Judith Butler, that some of the feminists who have pushed back against gender-inclusive language are feminists who have fought for a long time not to have women's identities be based on their ability to have kids and the glorification of the role of mother and so on, so on to, to fight hard against a term that tries to dissociate the ability to bear children as solely an ability of women. And I'm wondering what you think of that. Well, um, first of all, let me also say that I love what Roxanne said about imagination. And yes. Maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need the That po- will be the, the theme of the hour. <laughs> we need the poets to be leading us at this moment. <laughs> Um, uh, I, um, you know, um, there are feminists who say, look, uh, let's just be commonsensical. It's women who give birth. Um, it's a distinctive reproductive capacity of women. Let's just stay within that frame. Um, but let's think about that frame because, uh, some of us were told that if you don't reproduce, you're not really a woman. Um, or some of us uh, never had that capacity to reproduce for various hormonal or uh, health-related issues, uh, reasons. Um, Some of us chose not to. Um, Some of us did by accident. But if you told somebody who did not reproduce or could not reproduce, who understands herself to be a woman, that she's not a real woman, then you're actually buying into the idea that reproduction is the is the norm. And that's what, and it's only by giving birth that you become a woman. Um, So yes, feminists have argued against that. And we want to include uh, in the category of women, those who reproduce and those who don't or can't. Uh, Let's remember some of us are too young or too old. (laughs) We're still in the gender. (laughs) We shouldn't, we're no less or more. Um, but, But also that reproductive capacity belongs to those who have um, who've left the, uh, their, their sex assigned at birth uh, for good, strong reasons and who uh, need to live, who require to live in another gender. And we should not be committing discrimination against them um, as we fight for reproductive rights. We should simply be widening the tent and understanding those perspectives and incorporating them. Well, I wonder sometimes, Roxanne, and I'm thinking about your comment earlier about at this time of rollback, people feeling more sensitive to 
asserting categories that they feel are being targeted, like women, for example. Giving birth or the capacity to give birth was in some ways an organizing principle of women-only spaces, a shared trait. Do you think that there's a fear that there's no longer a community of shared characteristics? Um, yeah, go ahead. I can hear you. Uh, no, that's a really great question. And I think that's what they convince themselves they're afraid of. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that it's that genuine of a fear. And I think the idea that we are unified around being able to give birth, you know, as Judith points out, many of us can't for one reason or another. And does that make us less of a woman? Uh, So I think that the minute we start to create these very narrow ways of identifying and connecting, we already start to exclude women. And so we have to be careful and we have to be more expansive uh, because we are not erasing women in any of this. Um, but we are acknowledging that womanhood contains multitudes, as does the entire gender spectrum. Yeah. Well, Felix writes, I love the term pregnant people because it doesn't exclude trans men like me or non-binary folks from discussions about pregnancy, health care and abortion. It's not easy for trans people to access reproductive health care as it is. Interestingly, one of the, the areas of pushback that we have heard, even from listeners on our show when we use the term pregnant people, is that it's such a small number. Um, it affects such a small number of people relative to the fact that it affects people who occupy the category woman. And I am curious what you think about that argument, Judith Butler. I'll start with you. Well, I it I think what you're what people who say that are saying is that min- minorities are inevitably going to be excluded and subjugated. And that if you don't occupy a dominant position within a community, you will you will suffer effacement. And I think we have to reject that. What kind of dangers do you think we get into, Roxanne Gay, when we look at it kind of by numbers, I guess? Oh, I think there are so many dangers. How many people need to be affected by something before we care about it? And the answer for me is one. If it was one person then that would be enough. And when we start to think in terms of numbers, we get further and further away from what I think feminism is supposed to be. And it actually makes me really sad when people try to engage in arguments of accounting Hmm. because there are enough people who are affected by this that we should be able to be comfortable saying pregnant people. I personally say women and pregnant people, um, but However you approach it, the inclusion is what matters, and the numbers are far less relevant. Yeah, it almost also takes away from the focus on the actual harm itself in and of itself. Correct. And it also implies that we're okay with a small number of people being harmed so that the rest of us are okay. Yeah. Dr. D. Knight uh, tweets, how do I feel? I feel like there are people and some of these people get pregnant and disdain for a term that describes this so literally is likely related to how much power one thinks they hold and how little of it they'd like to see shared with those they don't seem they don't deem worthy. Let me go to Scott in Menlo Park. Hi, Scott. Good morning. Interesting conversation. (laughs) Um, I guess my opinion would be um, 
that overall, you know, I don't think women are trying to be, they're trying to cancel women, but they're definitely, we as a society have been devaluing women for many years. Men leave with their wives, uh, broke, more broken families, more women raising ch- children on their own. Our Supreme, the newest Supreme Court justice was not even able to define what a woman was. Um, and also we have people invading uh, men, I would say biological men, invading women's sports space. I think that's just beginning to happen. And it doesn't seem like your guests really are in favor of kind of women being identified as their own particular unique uh, person. Like you don't even have anybody on there with a serious opposing view to your guests. But I wanted to ask your guests if you had to, if you had to answer one way or the other, does society value women more or less now today than they did, say, 10 or 20 years ago? Well, Scott, let me get a reaction first from Judith. Go ahead, Judith. Um, well, thank you, Scott, for your comment. Um, I think that uh, um, on the on the issue of whether uh, so-called biological men are invading women's sports or something like that, I, I think we we have to maybe step back a little bit and 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 understand that um, that some people who are assigned male at birth um, don't fit into that sex and cannot live under that sex that it for them it is a requirement of life to um, to change that that category they they there may be um, uh, uh, bio, biological reasons or anatomical reasons for the sex assignment originally, but um, people do change their sex, and when they do, it's not a whim. It's a, it's actually a, a, an absolutely crucial uh, part of who they are. So then the question is, how do how does sports accommodate them? And it's a complex question, maybe for another hour, <laughs> but um, but I, I think we have to really acknowledge that it's a complex question and we, we can't just make a judgment about it in advance. We're talking with Judith Butler and Roxanne Gay about gender-neutral language, gender-inclusive terms, the reaction that it's getting in a post-Roe world. We'll have more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Roxanne Gay is with us, author of Difficult Women, Hunger, and Bad Feminist. Judith Butler, Maxine Elliott Professor in the Department of Comparative Literature at UC Berkeley, known for Gender Trouble and other seminal works. You, our listeners, are with us as well, emailing your thoughts 
on terms like pregnant people, gender-neutral language, and the kind of reactions and debates that it's provoked, backlash from some feminists, and then backlash to that backlash against uh, some of those arguments. And it's become a very complex and difficult situation for a lot of people to navigate to the point where we have listeners saying things like, the right-wingers are in a tizzy. This is Noel tweeting, are in a tizzy and ridiculing the debate. Getting sucked into their vortex is a waste of energy that we need to use to help protect reproductive justice in forced birth states. Samantha writes, meanwhile, the radical right takes over the country. But yes, let's keep arguing about language. Roxanne Kate, curious what your reaction is to that. This sense that that really uh, forces on the right are successfully provoking the left into a debate against each other around the around gender neutral language and women. I mean, I think that gives the right a lot more power than they actually have. I, are they doing that? Is that part of their strategy? Absolutely. But quite frankly, the left is doing it all on its own without their help. And I think it's important to recognize that and to take responsibility for that as a community. Um, a lot of the discourse, especially over the past two months, has been about we have to move beyond language. We have to move beyond language. But, you know, guess what, guys? We have the capacity to handle multiple conversations at the same time. We can talk about language, which does matter. And we can also talk about reproductive justice and housing and food insecurity justice and uh, racial justice and queer justice. Like we can do all of these things. And quite frankly, we have to do all of these things. Mm. And so every time someone says, oh, why are we bothering with this? What they're saying is, I don't want to talk about this. It's making me uncomfortable. And so I am going to try and distract you by pointing out something over there that I'm also not talking about while I continue to say that I don't want to talk about this. Do you think an entitlement to comfort, you're talking about discomfort in the relation in relation to not wanting to talk about this, but also discomfort that we were hearing at the beginning of the hour and in, in my senior producer's experience between the mother and son, just the discomfort of being called out for not using gender-inclusive language. For example, um, fueling some of the strong reaction. And the reason that I ask this is because, you know, this listener tweets, I find young people less accepting than some of us older folk, just because we may push back on the use of language doesn't mean we are not accepting of the rights of all. The immediate criticism and hatred of young people toward anyone who doesn't accept their ideas is a problem. So just curious if you think that is also part of the reaction that we're seeing is just the sense that people don't like to be asked to change and called out for not. (laughs) Well, yeah, people hate being asked to change. Change is uncomfortable. I don't particularly love change, but we have to learn to get comfortable with discomfort. Discomfort is productive. And unfortunately, we have somehow created an atmosphere where people feel entitled to comfort. And I wish everyone could be comfortable. I surely do. But we are not entitled to comfort. We are not entitled to living in a world as we design it. We live in this world, and we all should be invested in making this world a better place. And we should also recognize that to do so is going to require some discomfort. Let me go to Amy in Berkeley. Hi, Amy. Hi. Thank you so much for this incredible, important show. Um, And I agree with everything your guests are saying and many of your callers uh, and texters also. Um, I did send in a a link that I hope you can put on your website. I wanted to mention two things. One is that the moth had a beautiful story of a man, um, Tristan Reese, 
who uh, is a trans man who carried his baby. And he and his husband are now proud parents of their baby. Um, so there are pregnant um there are men who do carry babies who are trans men. And um, amongst the many young people I'm in my life, very close, and I want to protect confidentiality, but one person who I'm very close with, a, a young trans man, um, has gynecology problems and has to go to a gynecology office on a regular basis. And it's often very uncomfortable for him in the waiting room, um, being there uh, for some of the... with the looks he gets from some of the people. So it's really tough. And I'm so glad that you are bringing Mm -hmm. this to attention and my heart and listening to the show. I am terrified because one of the um, young gay trans men in my life at one point um, had to deal with a pregnancy scare. And I am terrified for young gay trans men who find themselves pregnant somewhere where they cannot access an abortion. It's one thing for a woman to be forced to have a baby, but a young gay trans man, um, I mean, it, it's no le- no no greater uh, a tragedy, but it's also a potential tragedy. Well, Amy, thank you. Judith Butler, just on a non-discriminatory level, on a practical level, the need to use inclusive language is what I think Amy is reflecting here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Maybe I have a different story. A, fr- a friend of mine has um, a kid who is now about 27, and um, and that kid said, uh, look, Mom, you got to start calling me they. That's what I am, and this is how I identify. And um, at first the mom was like, oh, my God, what do I have to do? My kid has been she for so long, and now suddenly I have to, be, I have to say they. Why, you know, what, what, what kind of you know, trouble is this that I'm being given. And now that same mom is um, super firm in the pronoun. And the reason why she's super firm is that she realizes that it gives recognition to her child, that this child is asking for recognition, saying, you know, it was never right for me to be a she. It just, it didn't feel right. I, you know, and this kid struggles for reproductive justice. This kid is a strong feminist, but wants to be a they. I mean, you can be a they and still be and still identify as a woman. You can be a they without being non-binary. You can be non-binary without being a they. Uh, you know, these things don't always line up, but it does mean that we have to listen and overcome our crustiness, our, our rigidity. Be, and the reason why is because you want to connect and you want to listen and you want to love, right? Yeah. You you want to offer recognition. Somebody is saying, offer me recognition, and you give a choice. You can say, no, I'm not going to offer you recognition, or yes, of course I am, and I will struggle, and it does mean changing, but I will do it. Well, Megan writes, I'm definitely a feminist and support trans rights, but I'm also from a purple state, and I fear that this type of language alienates the middle-of-the-road voters we so desperately need to protect human rights. I prefer keeping the word woman or mother and then adding, and anyone who can get pregnant. I want to be inclusive, but I am mindful of meeting people where they are to help bring them along. Roxanne, what's your reaction to what Megan is saying there? You know, I understand that point of view. I do. Um, I'm from Nebraska, and I've lived most of my life in rural America. But the idea that we have to postpone progress to make middle of American 
more comfortable with voting to do the right thing is really just horrifying to me. I understand that that may well be the reality, but do we actually understand what we're saying and what we're asking? It's exactly what has happened throughout history when marginalized groups tell people who are multiply marginalized, we'll get to your issues later because right now we have to do this for the greater good. And what we're saying is that we're going to sacrifice trans lives for the greater good because that's what will make people in purple states more comfortable. And I think that's a shame. I think that's a shame that this is where we are at as a people, because guess what? They were also uncomfortable with ending slavery. Well, Mary writes, how does the tension around including trans and non-binary people in discussions of reproductive rights mirror similar historical tensions on how to make room for other groups, like women of color, disabled women, and discussions of feminism that have historically failed to acknowledge their experience. Judith Butler, what do well, you think? <laughs> I remember the day <laughs> um, when I went to feminist meetings and people said, well, if we name lesbianism, we will be dividing the movement that we all needed to stay women <laughs> and that we couldn't include that term because it was divisive and it would undermine unity. Well, it turned out, you know, it was important that people with any number of sexualities felt at home in feminism, and that seemed to work. Um, but there were people who thought that the main object of feminism was to define what it is to be a woman. And sometimes we get so bogged down in those debates that we forget what we're fighting for and what we're fighting against and how strong our alliances need to be in order to win that fight. And right now in this political climate, I think those last questions are the most important. And what are they? Do you name it specifically? What well, you're fighting against? I, I actually... Um, uh, think that we are seeing the rise of authoritarian uh, powers uh, across the world and in the United States. And here, I believe it's bolstered by a um, interlocking and toxic mix of um, white supremacy um, uh, and um, uh, anti-gender politics. And by gender here, I don't mean just women, although I do mean women, absolutely. Uh, but I think... Um, uh, the the targets are gay and lesbian people, binary people, single mothers, gay marriage, sex education, contraception, reproductive rights. These are all clustered, and um, we, uh, you know, as as I've said, and I'll say it one, one last time, we would be a mistake. We would be making a mistake uh, if we didn't see how how these are clustered and how they're linked to white supremacy. Well, let me go to Lily in Sunnyvale. Hi, Lily. Yes. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate this conversation. And one thing that strikes me is just much like where you started. I have a mom who's in her 70s, and she was very active in the feminist movement her whole life. And her mother was, too, fighting for the ERA. We've had many conversations because I have a lot of trans young people in my life. And, you know, the thing around the language that strikes me is that women in the 70s were fighting so that we wouldn't say policeman, we'd say police officer. And we wouldn't say, you know, male man, we'd say male carrier. And 
that was important, having that gender-neutral language. And, you know, being a woman, and so it feels useful. Well, well, Lily, thanks for your reflection. And let me remind listeners that we are talking with Judith Butler, uh, a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, a feminist writer, thinker, along with Roxane Gay, an author of Difficult Women, Hunger, Bad Feminists, so many other works that uh, also focus on feminism. She also edited and wrote the introduction for the new anthology, The Selected Works of Audre Lorde. And let me read just a couple more comments because I want to go back to something that both Roxanne and Judith were mentioning earlier. So Rachel writes, why are women always the first group that is asked to subsume themselves in the name of being inclusive? Mika or Micah also writes, even in our darkest moments, we are expected, even demanded, to think of others first. When we think of this sort of sentiment and other things that seem to be disrupting an ability to form the alliances that are necessary, I'm curious, Roxanne Gay, how you think we can build a collective movement, how we can form the necessary alliances, as you describe? Yes. Uh, you know, I know that we probably rely too much on the idea of empathy rather than the practice of empathy. Um, But really it does require empathy and it really saddens me when I hear women say like, why do women have to go first? As if being inclusive to other people who are marginalized in the context of gender somehow is the same as women being asked to defer to men. It's just deeply sad and I wish it were different. I wish that people could have, again, it comes back to imagination, but empathy. And I think that the way that we get toward to collectivity is to recognize that this fight really does help all of us and it does bolster all of us. And this is not asking women to sacrifice themselves in the way that society does. This is asking women to remember that until all of us are free, none of us are free. Judith Butler, you've been traveling. You've been looking a lot at activist movements in Latin America and other parts of the world. What have you seen or feel like we can learn uh, that would help with this project of alliance building, which both you and Roxanne seem to be calling for? Mm -hmm. Well, um, in Latin America, there are a couple of amazing feminist groups. One of them is Ni Una Menos, which um, began as an anti-violence uh, movement, uh, not, not one more woman will be lost, um, responding to femicide. But um, but in, in Latin America, the, the attacks on women and the attacks on trans people and travestis um, are, are taken uh, together. I mean, they understand that these are attacks on the, on the for the most part by, by men against, um, against uh, these minorities. And also, that their rights have not been properly um, uh, enforced by law or formulated in law, um, and the feminist movement there um, has a critique of state violence, of extra state violence, but also links to um, housework, uh, wages for housework, or discrimination on the job, or domestic abuse and domestic battery. Uh, it has a it has a broad coalition, and there are men involved, there are trans people involved, there are feminists involved. And there's also a very clearly an anti-extractivist and um, 
uh, politics that defends indigenous peoples as well, um, and those who are homeless, right? So there's like there's an amazing alliance. Uh, it's feminist, but it's a it's almost like a new framework for the left. It's not an identitarian politics. It's a it's one that um, takes one form of suffering and identifies from that from that point of view with other points of view without collapsing the differences. And it's and we could call that empathy the way Roxanne is or imagination, which is involved in all identification. But we need more of that practice. And if women say, oh, we've been we've been effaced for so long or we've been asked to cede place to other people for so long, well, maybe other people have been effaced and asked to cede place. Think about Native peoples in the United States. Well, what does it mean to link those various movements where people have had that experience, even though those experiences are different? Mm. We don't want to be locked inside of our own perspective. We want to use our perspective in order to expand circles of identification and alliance. Well, interestingly, we've been getting comments that have been saying, why do you have guests who agree? Why don't you bring on someone from the Christian right who can share their perspective on this? And I'm curious, Roxanne Gay, what your thoughts are on that kind of a question. We did, of course, make the deliberate decision to try to untangle what we felt like was happening with regard to pushback from feminist circles with feminist scholars like you and Judith. But but just that is um, a, a, a sense, a reaction that's fairly common. How do you feel about it? I'm sorry, which reaction? The reaction of you should bring someone on from the Christian right to this kind of discussion as opposed to having two people on oh, who generally yes. agree. <laughs> we could try to fight, Roxanne. I don't know. I mean, I'm down for that. It would be a fairly one-sided fight, but I'm willing to lose in public. Um, you know, I really think it's frustrating. And I talk about this in a lot of my work. Um, I'm not going to sit down and have a chat with racists, homophobes, transphobes, or really anyone else who's bigoted, because I just don't think those are legitimate points of view. We cannot debate people's humanity. Trans identity is real. They are a community that is probably one of the most marginalized and endangered communities in this world. And so why on earth would we need to speak to anyone who believes that they are um, not people? I'm not going to do it. Roxanne Gay, Judith Butler, thank you for your insights. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Caroline Smith. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.